Anybody feeling a little rundown after Christmas? Right? You get that huge hype, and it's worth every second of it. And I, I trust and I pray that each of you have had a great time, uh, a Christmas season, if you will. But coming out of this week, kind of from Christmas, leading up to it, all the way in the middle of it, right up to New Year's, I heard somebody call that quasi-time. It just feels a little strange, right? You don't know. You have so much to do, but you want to rest to get started with the new year. And then, you know, there's things happening. So you are busy, but then you can lay around most of the day, hopefully on uh, New Year's Day, to rest up a little bit. So we're in that quasi time, but coming out. I'll say welcome to 2022 again, otherwise known as 2020 Part 2. All right, I see everybody with masks, and let me applaud you if you've uh, joined us in person, you braved Omicron and the possible exposure to come out here with your masks and sit with us, but I also want to welcome those of you who are attending at home, right? We have this uh, as an ability online, and this morning, we are actually starting, just as Seth mentioned, a brand new series, Uh, the series I'm calling Dress for Battle. It'll go over the armor of God. And a few weeks before Advent, Jim actually introduced and started this series for us in a message he had called, Don't Go Into Battle or Never Fight Your Battles Undressed. Right Now, during that time, uh, Jim shared a story, and he told all of us his special tactics that he has in mind to protect his home from any intruders. Now, here's some of you giggling. That means that you can remember back to that story during the time. If you haven't, go online at ffcph.org. Go to the sermons right where we download and have all of those, and you can listen to that again. I guarantee you it will shock and awe you as much as his plan was to shock and awe. <laughs> but anyway, today we get into this uh, series for Dress for Battle, and I'm really excited to be able to have a part of it. I'm going to confess to you a little bit um, that I know you all look at me and you think, man, what a cool guy Bill is. And he's really, you know, just one of those guys that defines us sort of like, uh, <laughs> you know, some of those if television evangelists. Well, no, nothing from the sense. But anyway, um, there was a time in my background where I absolutely loved anything medieval warfare. All right, so the medieval times especially, right, and when they brought that here and going to that, I loved. I was a Dungeons and Dragons teen back in the 80s. I loved playing that game, and so much so that I even did this really cool thing. Well, okay, it's not really cool, but called LARPing. Anybody ever heard of that? It stands for Live Action Role Playing, <laughs> right? And it's a bunch of people who dress up or put on these costumes. Many of them are very realistic and you put all these pieces on with you and you go out with foam padded swords and maces and you recreate battles and stuff. I used to belong to a group called Darkon and I did that for several years. And it's funny because naturally and even before I was saved, I always had this inclination and always a fascination and always wanted to play the paladin. Now, for those of you that may think back, the paladin was a holy warrior, a holy knight that would take on demons, 
right? And, and in the Dungeons and Dragons world, all of these devils and monsters and demons would be fought by this paladin. And the paladin had special powers that came along with them. Well, I always felt like this passage was the reality of that fantasy component. So I'm very excited to share it with you today. And as we get started, please just turn with me to Ephesians. We're going to be in chapter 6. And I'm going to read verses 10 to 18. Since I'm restarting, if you will, the series, right, from what Jim did, I'm going to go over a couple of extra things. But then today we're going to focus primarily on the belt of truth component of the armor of God. Okay? Let me read this for us today. Hopefully you've gotten there. Ephesians 6, verses 10 to 18. The whole armor of God. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Let's bow your heads with me as we pray. Heavenly Father, you sent your Son... Uh, who so loved the world that he died for it. And specifically, he died for the church out of that love so that he could wash her with water, present her clean and spotless before you for your glory. Father, we confess to you that we are not always that clean and spotless church, that we are weak. But Father, today... Would you bolster our hearts? Would you teach us how the armor of God that you give us is there for us to be strong? And strong not in our own deeds, but strong in you. Father, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So as we cover today's message and encounter the scripture together, there's three main areas that I want to bring your attention and speak to. Namely, first, our mission as believers, and this is defined by Paul. Second, a little bit about our enemies that we're facing. And third, the intro to our defense in the form of the belt of truth. And I'll speak directly about that. But before we move directly into those teachings for the armor of God... I think we could all benefit from a little grounding, maybe background and context for the letter of Ephesians. 
And one of the best ways to really get that context is to go back to Acts 19. So if you do something during this series, go back and reread Acts 19 for yourself. But to give you kind of that overview, in Acts 19, we see Paul engaged in his missionary work. And because of three main events that are documented there, we get a picture of this hotbed of demonic activity that was present in ancient Ephesus. First, Paul is described as casting out evil spirits and healing the sick. That's for those who may be looking in Acts 19, verses 11 and 12. Now, these extraordinary miracles, freeing victims of demonic oppression, were performed directly in the public eye, in front of a great number of witnesses. Everyone in the city knew of the apostles' actions. Second, we're told of seven sons of Sceva, who were exorcists. And that's where you can see these verses 13 to 16. Now, when they tried to use Jesus' name to cast out a demon, the demon rose up and beat them all to a pulp, stating that they knew Jesus, or that the demon knew Jesus, and he knew Paul, but he didn't know them, and that they didn't have any authority over them since they didn't know Jesus. And then third story in Acts 19 that indicates how powerfully Paul's defeat of demons influenced the Christian community. That'll be in verses 18 and 20. Many who had practiced sorcery as a defense against the demons brought out their books of spells and magic and burned them publicly. Luke tells us that the burned books were worth 50,000 drachma. And a drachma, we know, represented one day's worth of income. So 50,000 days worth of income were burned by the people as they were converted. So we see these miraculous days witnessed by so many, but also understand just how dark Ephesus was. Taken together, these three stories make it very plain that Ephesus was the center of satanic activity. Thus, the Acts account provides an important clue to understanding the purpose and value of this significant New Testament epistle. For Ephesians has more references to demonic powers than any other New Testament letter, and Paul presents his teaching as divinely provided armor against the attacks of evil spirits. So without further delay... What are Paul's instructions to these believers who were besieged and attacked by Satan's power, right, and that of his dark allies? In his first instruction, found in verse 10, he covers our mission. And our mission says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. We see we're to be strong in who? The Lord and the strength of his might. Now, this was a little bit different than my LARPing days that I mentioned, where you had to be strong in your own might. And I can think of several times where I had this brilliant plan, saw myself out there as this wonderful strategy guy. Uh, my first day that I actually went out to one of their battles, right, we took a bunch of friends with us, and we had worked on our swords to try to get them padded so that they would pass all this stuff, but we didn't know what we were doing. 
And so I wound up with this two-handed broadsword that was bigger than me and about this wide and heavy as could be. And we get out there, and I'm looking at people using little swords this big. They're real quick, all this stuff. And then we see this one big guy out there. I swear he looked like Conan the Barbarian. Just as high. I had to be over six foot tall, huge, big. He was a weightlifter, muscle guy, wearing a belt. They're out there. And they said, hey, before we start the battle, all the leaders will go out into the middle and have a battle royale to find out what places you're going to start in. All right? All my friends looked at me and said, hey, Bill, we got something to tell you. I was like, what? They said, we elected you the leader. <laughs> so I went out there with this huge thing that we made, and I was clumsy, and I was slow, and I got my butt kicked pretty quickly. <laughs> so it's a lot different if I would have gone out there and not had to be strong in my own might for them, but maybe had some people with me <laughs> or somebody that knew what they were doing. Now, did you know that each piece of armor in the armor of God mentioned in the book of Ephesus has already been mentioned and ascribed to God himself in the Old Testament? That actually surprises a lot of people, right? If you ask them where the armor of God is mentioned, everybody will likely point to Ephesians 6, but almost nobody goes back into the Old Testament to see where it was first talked about. Don't believe me? Let me give you an example of one, an easy one, contained in Isaiah 11, verses 1 to 5. And there it says, There shall come forth from a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Now that word that's translated as righteousness here in many of the, our current Bible translation is actually the Hebrew word emet, E-M-E-T. It's better translated as that which is authentic, not a copy or something that can be trusted and is reliable. The underlying concept is that something that is emet is in harmony with reality. It's not a falsehood. As the young people would say today, that's not cap, that's for real. See, I told you I was cool. I know these words, right? <laughs> okay, that didn't go over well. Seth, I need to take some lessons in here. <laughs> now, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word aletheia is used in place of righteousness, which is the same word used in Ephesians for truth. So verse 5 in Isaiah, written almost 600 years before the Ephesians, ascribes to Jesus as wearing the belt of truth, and truth being the belt of his loins. But being strong in the Lord is not the only part I want you to notice as part of our mission. Paul goes on to say... Right? Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. 
Now that means for us that you can't pick and choose without leaving a weakness for the devil to support. So even though I'm just teaching about the belt of truth today, it doesn't stop there. You can't say, well, that sounds good. That's what I'll do and move on. Right? This is an all or nothing effect. And the idea of a full suit of armor was to transform the foot soldier into essentially a human tank, ideally equipped for the type of warfare that he would face. In choosing the image of a Roman soldier or a Roman legionnaire, more specifically, to use as an analogy for this teaching, Paul knew that the first century inhabitants of Ephesus would instantly recognize several characteristics of armor as plainly observable. For instance, the most common battle formation for the Roman legionnaire of Paul's day was known as the phalanx. Now, this was copied from the original Greek army's phalanx, but exploited to maximum effectiveness through practice and drill in the Roman army. What would they do? They'd lock feet together in a formation, right, one behind the next, they get down in a very defensive posture, put these big shields up, and they would strike over the top of the shields. No one could make it through the, the shield wall. Yeah. Now, if someone further decided to fire uh, archery darts at them, maybe the fiery arrows or throw things at them, right, rocks, what would they do? On a quick command, everybody's shield would go up in a practice turtle maneuver. And that way, nothing got through their lines until they broke ranks to mop up what was left. Now, this was an image of strength. And when Paul says standing, that's the image he gives, not of the advancing army, but of the one that's able to extinguish the fiery darts that would come. The one that was able to be stand strong together against anything that would be thrown at it from its enemies. What Paul is saying in his analogy is that we're to put on everything that is provided to us by God so that we too can be fully effective. The third part of our mission, I just mentioned a little bit, that we are to stand against the schemes of the devil. We're not asked to fight. We're commanded to stand against the schemes. God and his angels have done the fighting and the battle's already won. Satan's a vanquished foe. He's a defeated terrorist looking to cause as much trouble as possible before his final day. We're to stand fast and endure his attacks through our belief, faith, reliance, and trust in our Lord. But in verse 13, we see that we're to put on this armor before the actual evil day. Why would we think we could wait? But don't we? I mean, the reality is most of us and many of us and probably all of us at some point or another have thought, oh, I'm having this really rough time. I'm going to go to Scripture and figure out what it, is to, what it has to say. Now, I'm not saying that's bad. What I'm saying is Paul's telling us to do something different. He's saying... Before that ever occurs, right, put on this armor. Now, those of you that have been in the military, let's say Army in particular, one of the things they do is they issue body armor to you, right? Marines, body armor today in the model. 
And what that body armor is consists of usually a harness that's worn over, right? It's a vest. And it has literally several ceramic plates or ballistic plates in there. Those ballistic plates weigh something. <laughs> if you ever put those on, they actually are substantial. So it takes a while to get used to the weight. So what do drill sergeants do? They have you put on these things, and then they make you exercise. They make you climb, they make you run, they make you do all these things until that weight is something that you can bear and it's very easy to bear. As a matter of fact, you forget that it's on. You're used to going into battle with these things on. That's the image that Paul's given here. A Roman soldier's armor, it was not light. Right? I can tell you from even the LARPing stuff, not light at all. And it takes being in shape in order to do that. Paul's saying now, before the day of evil hits you, is the time for you to get in shape so that you're willing to stand. Maybe that resonates with some resolutions for us this year as we move forward. Right? What about these schemes? Well, we need to know a little more about our enemies to know about the schemes. So our enemies, in the first century... Most people were well aware that the spirit world was real. So when Paul in verse 12 says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, they understood him. They knew what each one of these terms meant. When we see cosmic powers, what do we think of right off the bat? Outer space, right? And when we think cosmic, we think that. They didn't have a concept of outer space back then. So what do they mean when they say cosmic? It's actually a translation of the Greek word cosmos. It means culture. It means all things that are bound. It means the same type of thing as the prince of the power of the air, the prince of the power of the cosmos, everything that happens to surround us right now. So what they're saying and what Paul's saying is our struggles against these rulers, against authorities, against the cosmos, our culture, right over this present darkness. And that darkness is the word skotos, which can also mean confusion, a hiding, right, a covering, not knowing truth can be darkness, right, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The first century people that Paul's speaking to knew this very well, and they believed it to be occupied their day in and day out by a variety of spirits. There were spirits of the dead. There were spirits of the heroes of old. There were spirits who were gods and goddesses, and there were demons, evil spirits. All these spirits were believed to interact with the world of men and to have impact on the living. Everything, success in business, in love, in athletic competitions, even in one's health, depended on whether the spirits were pleased or displeased with an individual. And the spirits were at best capricious. None really cared about a human's welfare. Any spirit was more likely to harm a person than help them. The best anyone could do was to make offerings to placate those possibly angry or hostile spirits. Or they even believed that they would resort to magic and try to control them. Most of the time, the magic backfired 
And like the sons of Sceva, those employing the magic would be hurt or killed by the demons, powers, and spirits they were attempting to control. Now, before you think that this is all the stuff of fairy tales and exaggeration and, and just first century people not understanding science, right? the Bible itself affirms the reality of evil spirits. You can't get away from that. Right? In the Old Testament, pagan gods and deities were seen and great accounts of their power was given. Witchcraft, sorcery, and divination was shown. Principalities, such as Daniel's prince of Persia, who were in charge of really moving nations, entire nations, into certain directions, right, as given by Satan himself, was also demonstrated in Scripture. In the Gospels, we see demons' impact on people in the form of demonic possession, we see them tormenting individuals, the affliction and the influence that they can have to make people do things that they normally wouldn't do of themselves. In the epistles, we see a spiritual war taking place on the believers. Now, that's in the form of direct fleshly temptation. In the culture, cosmos, as I mentioned, and an inflicted blindness or confusion obstruction, and eroded confidence in God. Makes a lot of sense, right, when we think about it that way. What would demon activity, or what demon activity would Paul focus on if he visited Baltimore today? Would it be drug addiction? Poverty? Crime? Political corruption? Racial tensions, human trafficking, declining church attendance, maybe encroaching secularism. We can easily see those outputs and effects of the spiritual world and spiritual decay if we look for them. Now, you really don't even have to look that hard to even see occult influences and just overt devil worship. Did you know that as of 2020, the number of people who list their religion as Wiccan or witchcraft or African spiritualism now exceed those registering as Presbyterians in Baltimore? Think about that a second. There's even a national satanic temple in nearby Washington, D.C., the battle, my brothers and sisters, is real. But for the sake of today's topic, can we just focus maybe and leave the more sensational devil schemes aside? Acknowledge that they're there, but maybe let's just focus on one scheme that I like to call Satan's go-to move. Right, The scheme he loves the most. The scheme he uses on believers in many different nuanced ways, and that is... The scheme of undermining God. So we look in Genesis 3, verses 1 to 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say? Pretty overt right off the bat, right? Did God actually say? 
So Satan opens with this. Really? And it's kind of soft, right? It could be aimed at Eve. Did you hear him right? Right? It could be just left out there for you to question. Did I understand him right? He says, did he really say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And Eve, I love what she does here. She actually stands firm, right? She says to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So Eve repeats it. She knows the word. She sticks and answers Satan with the word of God. But the serpent said to the woman, you'll surely not die. Once again, doubling down, right? Twisting it just a little more. Okay, so if you don't believe, and this is sort of my 1960s Maxwell Smart, would you believe you won't die? Right? So he tries the next thing. You surely won't die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So at first, Satan questions what God said. Even if he finds out that you know what God said... Now he's questioning God's motives to you. Undermining God each step of the way. In other words, God's not telling you the truth. Right? You won't die. But it goes on. And then Eve falls for the trap. Right? What does she do? What does she decide to do here? She decides to take this on herself. She decides to apply her own abilities to her judgment, right? She decides to judge for herself this fruit. And what does she see? She sees that the tree was good for food, and it was delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate, right? Adam's not absolved from this. He's sitting there the whole time right with her, not stopping her, not saying anything. It's almost as if the woman in this relationship was more spiritual than Adam. little poke there, gentlemen, <laughs> right? We don't want to be Adam in this form of sitting by, standing by, by ourselves, not stepping in, not standing in between Satan and our wives. But what happens here? She takes of it, ate, and gives it to him. They looked at it and with their own judgment thought, eh, looks pretty good to me. Right? Guess I'm going to do this. The devil uses this scheme on us over and over. And unfortunately, many a believer falls for it over and over again. Many believers, including myself at times, including you at times, think we can determine the truth for ourselves. Right? We think we can just wing this thing called spiritual warfare and navigate the challenges ourselves. And the devil knows that with a little prompting, he can trip up, push over, and push aside those who would look to themselves and their own humanly power to stand firm against him, his demons, his principalities, and evil spirits. But Paul tells us we do have a way to stand. We have a way to stand and resist. Our defense, today we'll look at the belt of truth. 
Now, most teachings that you hear about the belt of truth point to this little skirt that's pictured here. Right? The skirt has the, the sword attached to it. It may have a knife. It has bands that come down. It has those brass metal pieces affixed to it that protects the most sensitive parts of your body. Most people, I believe, are wrong. And in seminary and a lot of other people showed me this differently. It was hard for me to think of at first. But one of the things that made me think about it is they said, if it's this belt that Paul's talking about, why would he talk about putting it on first? They would never put this belt on first. Why, you might ask. And this is where maybe I have a benefit out of my LARPing. <laughs> you put a sword on a belt and then try to bend down and put your sandals on. Right? This sword on the belt, you can even see it. When it goes to it, it brings everything together, ties everything together. It's holding up in a harness your breastplate. It's going around your waist. It has a knife focused to one. It has the sword of the spirit, in this case, over on the other side. And then it kind of goes over the armor as well. So there's no way you could really put this on first. So is it possible, I'll ask you, that Paul's talking about something else? Right? The Greek letter literally says, stand having girded your loins with truth. It does not mention a belt or define exactly what equipment it was that the Roman soldier girded around his loins. Now, what, girding, was one lo ugh, girding one's loins, easy for me to say, right, um, is something you may have read in the Bible. Do you know what that really was with the Jewish people? It's when they had these long robes, right, and they're getting ready for battle, and they would pull the bottom up, pull it up around them so it sort of forms shorts and skirt, turn it around and tuck it in. Now they could move freely without tripping over their skirts, right, and it would bring everything together. It also would form sort of like a sports cup, man, right, right for them with this big knot of cloth that would go into the front to help protect them. That's what girding your loins is. But in the Bible, this is really the first place that we see that term applied to a military use and a full military use from the Romans. So we think, and we're pretty sure, if Paul's not talking about that, what is he talking about? He's talking about something that you can't see that's already there, and that's a supportive girdle. One that the people would have known of during that day. That girdle would have looked something closer like this and go on underneath. And what was the purpose of the girdle at the time? And having a girdle on, was it to look good? Right, accentuate those shoulders, men, the chest, right? It was the, the, the new t-shirt of the day. No, it's a support tool. Any weightlifters in here? What do you do when you get into the heavy weightlifting? Right? You put that big leather belt on there so it helps your back as you're lifting. What do you do if you're like an occupation that has to move a lot of boxes around all the time? You put this harness on your back. It's a big, thick belt that goes around, has a harness, goes over your shoulders too to support your back, and that flex all the time. The soldiers who had to lock legs, stand against barbarians and everything else together that would come at them, they had a lot of core strength need that they needed to stand there. And that's what Paul is talking about when he talks about the belt of truth. 
Paul's talking about that belt that we can't see, that tightly wrapped leather girdle. The Roman legionnaire standing with his fellow soldiers would have known all well, as well as the people. And it leaves a thought and a picture in your mind that's needed, that the belt of truth, truth becomes our strength and core as a believer. So living by God's word, wrapping God's truths tightly around us, provides just the support you and I need. It's reliable, trustworthy, and stable. After all, this is what Jesus taught in John 8, when he told his early followers that if they put his words into practice, they would know the truth, and the truth would set them free. But Jesus also spoke of light when he spoke of truth. Why is light important? The late great author Robert Louis Stevenson, who's my English majors in here, What's another great book that Robert Louis Stevenson wrote? Everybody remember? I won't embarrass you. Treasure Island. <laughs> All right? But in this book, Kidnapped, tells the story of David Balfour. And David Balfour was the son of a landowner. And as his father passes away, he gets a will from his father that says, Hey, son, we're part of this house of landowners, and you should go claim your inheritance with your uncle, right? So David sets out, and he goes through there. It's a two-day journey from his own home. He has a letter from an attorney, and he's going to visit his uncle and claim his inheritance. And as he gets close, a storm starts brewing. Clouds just cloud out everything. It's gray. And in the distance, he goes to this house of shawls, and very different to his expectations, he sees this half built what looks like a crumbling type castle, right? Not in full repair, nothing like he thought was going to be. He goes up and it becomes so dark that he's just squinting, looking for anything, feeling his way around. He finally finds big doors in the front and he knocks on these doors. And he knocks and he knocks and he knocks on these doors waiting for someone. And finally, he sees a small light through the opening that grows bigger and bigger and it's an old man hunched over with a candle, a single candle. It's his uncle Ebenezer. Right? And his uncle Ebenezer, it says immediately, what do you want? And he says, I'm David Balfour. His uncle says, so what? He says, no, I'm David Balfour. He says, I'm your nephew. I'm sorry to tell you your brother has died, my father, and I'm here to claim my inheritance. He says, go away. He says, no, I'm here to claim my inheritance. I have a letter from my attorney. So he hears the unbuckling, the door opens up, he goes in, and it's, he surveys this great hall with a barren fireplace, a single table in the middle of the great hall. His uncle walks with the candle over there, and the candle has a light diameter of about two feet. <laughs> so he loses his uncle quick, but his uncle sits down, starts to go over the papers, right? And David says to him, he says, I noticed some wood over there and some coal. He's like, would you like me to make a fire for us to warm the night? His uncle says, fire and coal is too expensive. It's too close to time to go to bed anyway. So, okay, finishes reading. He says, I don't have time to go through all of these letters. He says, I, let's talk about this in the morning. David says, well, where will I stay? He says, 
I have a room just up to the right for you. He says, just up to the right, everything's dark. I can't see a thing. Where is that? He says, if you feel along the right wall, you'll come to a staircase. Keep your hand against that wall and feel the steps. You'll go all the way up. And at the top of those stairs, when the wall stops, turn right at the landing and take a big step through the threshold into your room. And there you'll be able to see from the light a little bit more right about your room. So David does this. He goes up and feels his way through the dark. We can barely see anything. And he keeps going up step after step after step after step for what seems like an eternity. And when he gets to the top of the stairs, he feels the end of the wall. He turns on the little landing. He makes his right turn. He's about to take that big step. And the lightning flashes. And he sees he's in front of a crag, a rocky crag, a mountain cliff that falls about 100 feet to just rockiness below. And he realizes that without that light, his uncle meant to kill him. It's a great book, and it goes on with other things. But the importance of light that Jesus always talked about is without light, you can't see what's actually there. Right? We're all in darkness by default, and we need that light to actually see what's ahead of us. And our problem is that we as human beings have lost touch with reality. We live in this world of illusions that are spun by Satan, right? Nevertheless, fake news, right? Fake reality <laughs> that appeal to our old nature, the old man that Paul implores us to take off. Stumbling along in this world of illusion like David Balfour, we're unable to distinguish between right and wrong, between what will benefit us and what will harm us. We desperately need a trustworthy source of light that will reveal reality. In John 18, I mean John 8, verse 12, Jesus speaks to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You understand that? Maybe a little different in this context now. Now, God's given us that beacon. It's his son and it's his word. They're synonymous for the believer. John tells us in chapter 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was God. Or word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Christ is the living word, the logos. But we have his spirit with us now, so that the Bible serves as both light and truth. God's word is true because it's teaching or in harmony with reality. And God's word is light because it makes that reality clear to us. In the words of the Apostle Paul, it's light that makes everything visible. Next, Paul tells us, that this illustrates why the belt of truth must be put on first, because it's absolutely key to putting on the rest of the armor. And the worship team can uh, make their way back up to stage now, too, as I go through this for the closing song. It's this fact that illustrates where we're at, a key to putting on that rest of the armor. The helmet of salvation protects us only as we live out our true identity in Christ. How do you find out that true identity? 
you need to start with the Word. The shield of faith enables us to advance despite those adverse circumstances. It allows us to stand and take what's thrown at us, but only as we rely on the trustworthiness of the God revealed in Scripture. The great Charles Spurgeon once said that the promises of God are like blank checks. All we have to do is take them, accept them, and cash them. Imagine how hard it is to do that if you don't even know about them. Next, it says we strap on the sandals that bring inner and interpersonal peace only as we commit our cause to the justice of God and forgive those who sin against us. Again, we need his word to show us his justice and learn how he would have us act. And then the breastplate of righteousness that wards off the devil's thrusts only as we can identify and reject sin in order to live godly lives. So fully equipped by living out the truth God shows us in Scripture, we can and will stand against all of Satan's attacks. But those are the subjects of the subsequent messages in the next pieces of the series. Now, R.C. Sproul says this about the church today. He says, I think the greatest weakness in the church today is that almost no one believes that God invests his power in the Bible. Everyone is looking for a power in a program, a methodology, or a technique. In anything and everything, but in that which God has placed it, his word. Last week, Seth talked about making New Year's resolutions. Right? And everybody around this time is doing it. And most of us, if we would go say, I want to read the Bible more. How would you read it if your very life depended upon it? It does. <laughs> That's exactly right. So maybe our resolutions that we can all make together is to read the Bible, to study the Bible, to know the Bible like our lives depend on it, because it does. Amen? Amen.